Wednesday evening. So grateful for such a good turnout, and, and we began what is going to be a very lengthy but deep study into the book of Revelation. And uh, if you have uh, opportunity to be a part of it, we begin at 7 o'clock every Wednesday. We did let out at 8 o'clock, or pretty close thereby, on Wednesday, and just having a great time, and, and you'll enjoy it. So put that on your calendar if you can, and come and eat a great meal with the kids at 6 o'clock, and then uh, we'll have Bible study at 7. We are beginning a new sermon series today. Beautiful banners that Jamie has provided for us once again. And uh, these, this sermon series is going to take us clear through, clear into 2020. How about that? And, um, you know, I, you know, this sermon series that we're beginning today that we've called Choose Joy. Many of you have heard me say on several occasions that Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, what we know as the book of Philippians, is my absolute favorite book in the entire Bible. And it's not often that I get to preach an entire sermon series from this book. And so I'm resurrecting a series that I did 25 years ago. And I'm giving it an extreme makeover and bringing it up to date. And and I'm just so so thrilled to be able to to share this sermon series with you. And uh, if you... uh, have to miss a Sunday of this, I promise you, you're going to want to pick it up and listen to it on the podcast because you don't want to miss any of this. This is going to be a fun series. How many of you think we could use some more joy in our world today? Well, that's the entire purpose behind this series. And the thing that makes the book of Philippians so attractive, so amazing to me, is that it's written by the Apostle Paul who is sitting in a Roman dungeon, chained hand and foot, waiting to be executed. And he writes a book of joy. Now, in fact, that theme of joy is so predominant in this entire letter that you find instance after instance in which Paul talks about the joy that he has just in serving Jesus. Even even to the point of being martyred uh, as a a testimony of his relationship with Jesus. Now, I realize that every one of us go through some stuff. You know what I mean? We all go through some stuff, don't we? But I'm not sure that any of us here this morning have ever faced the real threat of death for our belief in our Lord Jesus as the Apostle Paul is facing in this letter, much less being joyful over the possibility of being killed. Now, that's the circumstances in which Paul writes this letter of joy. And I can almost imagine him in my mind's eye in those chains, perhaps with a lighted torch, that will allow him to write or dictate this letter to a man whose name is Epaphroditus. And it happens over the course of what I imagine were several jail visits. 
It's widely believed that Philippians is actually a, compila- a compilation excuse me, of three separate letters that were written by the Apostle Paul, and either they were conveyed to Timothy, his student, or who in turn passed them on to Epaphroditus, or who possibly even edited the letters to make sure that they reflected everything that the Apostle Paul wanted to express in those letters. But whatever the details uh, of how the letters and this particular letter in it its entirety was written uh, and delivered to the church in Philippi. It's an amazing backdrop from which to write a letter of joy. Years ago, I came across the story of Mother Teresa. If you've ever done any study into Mother Teresa, it's, it's an uplifting story. Mother Teresa was uh, the person who, who fed literally hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Calcutta, India great ministry. And as I was reading up on Mother Teresa years ago before she passed, she was asked in that story to give a job description of that feeding ministry. And the reason that she was asked for the job to give a a job description was just in the event that anybody wanted to join her and be a part of it and continue it after she was gone. She listed only two requirements to work in that feeding ministry. The first was a desire to work and to work hard. And the second was to have a joyful attitude in the midst of the work. Go with me to Philippians chapter number 1. In verses 1 through 5, we hear not only Paul's greeting, but his opening thoughts. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Now just flip over a couple of pages with me in your Bibles if you're, having, if you're using your Bible this morning to chapter number 4. And I want to share just a couple of verses there with you. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. And then skip down to verse number 4 where he gives us a very familiar verse. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing, amazing letter that Paul has written and you have given to us as a gift. And Lord, I'm just praying not only for the peace of God that passes understanding to settle upon every person in this congregation over the course of this sermon series,
But I'm asking you, Lord, that whatever the circumstances, the situations that we find ourselves in, that you would produce in us joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, as we enter into a a season in the next days and weeks and a couple of months ahead of us, it's a season, Lord, that brings, has brought joy to the world. And Lord, I'm praying that it will bring joy to each and every one of us individually. So anoint us by the power of your Spirit to receive what you have to give to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there any th- such thing as a follower of Jesus cheering up another follower of Jesus? Well, there ought to be. There ought to be. Paul is saying to his converts that, that now make up this church in Philippi that, that he planted some 10 years prior to the writing of this letter. He's saying to them, do you love me enough to help me? I mean, he's not in denial about his circumstances. It doesn't look good for the Apostle Paul sitting there in that Roman dungeon. He knows what's, what lay ahead of him. And he's writing to them a letter of joy, but at the same time he's saying, hey, folks, here's my circumstances. I could use a little cheering up. I, I, I could use a little joy in the midst of my situation. Does it mean anything to you that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord and that we share the same spirit that lives in us? If so, if so, I could use some encouragement. Again, he realizes these circumstances. He wonders if his brothers and sisters in the family of God have, have hearts that are tender and sympathetic, sympathetic compassion for those in need. And if so, he appeals to make him happy. But you see, it's not just his joy that he's concerned about. He's concerned about others that do not have the joy that comes from serving the Lord. We just finished a sermon series out of the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah gives us a very important verse. He says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Paul realizes that not only does he need strength for trying hours, but he realizes that there are many other people, even in the church in Philippi, that need encouragement and need building up. How important it is that members of the family of God be people of humility and think of others as being more significant than ourselves. Oh, those aren't my words. We'll get to that in chapter number 2. He said, let each of you think of yourselves as being less important than the needs of others. And we need to be unselfish. And I believe we need to be unconcerned about what others may think about our faith. There are a lot of people who want to trash people who love Jesus and who follow Jesus. I say... Let them think whatever they want. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Now, Paul says there in, as he's giving the theme of this letter, and I'm paraphrasing, whatever happens, be glad in the Lord. 
Now, I got to tell you, over the last couple of weeks and months, whatever happens pertains to us has not been an easy road. And so I am, I'm doing this sermon series at this particular time, not just for you, I'm doing it for me. Because I have to hear this message, whatever happens, be glad in the Lord. Now, just having heard that much from this message today, wouldn't you agree that these words that the Apostle Paul is writing and that have been preserved for us over thousands of years, as it applies to us, is a pretty rare message in our day and age. It's pretty rare to hear in an age of media-driven negativity and bad news that we can have a joy that surpasses all of the stuff that comes against us. You know, we live in a world of, of long faces and heavy hearts. And if you question that analysis, just flip through the news channels on any given day, and you'll find that the focus is by and large on bad news. I remember back in the 80s, there was a songwriter, a singer, who wrote a song that said, We sure could use a little good news today. You remember that? Some of you who are older than dirt. Well, I guess I'm the only one then. But we can sure use a little good news today, amen? In fact, I personally believe that we're overdue for a good dose of joy. And we find that not only in this message, but in this entire series. It contains admonitions that ought to make us, are you ready for this? Smile. Admonitions that ought to make us smile. Smile. And I personally believe that there's no greater need today than the need for joy. And along with that joy are the necessary ingredients of being enthusiastic about life and being willing to encourage one another. If there's one thing that the church today needs, it's more ministers of encouragement. Building one another up in our faith. Now, it's tragic but true that that bad news sells. I realize that. Hearing bad news on one channel has now become a catalyst for us to just simply switch channels so that we can hear a different spin on the same bad news that we just heard on the previous channel. doesn't matter whether it's world or national news, the weather report, or even the sports news of the day. A large percentage of it is bad news. You know, you hear the weather reporter tell us that tomorrow's forecast is for partly cloudy skies and a 20% chance of rain. I've never yet heard a weatherman or a weather woman say, tomorrow's forecast is mostly clear skies and an 80% chance of sunshine. As you know, I'm a sports fan, and when the sports news comes on and reports to us the sports news of the day, it's almost impossible not to hear of the latest athletes' arrest for drugs, domestic violence, the selfishness of wanting more money to carry an inflated pigskin across a goal line. Bad news is everywhere. Now, what I'm saying to you is that the uplifting, encouraging, and enthusiastic message of life 
for some reason, is being constantly eclipsed by the downside of life in the world that we live in. And not only is it in the mainstream media and in social media, it's infiltrated, sadly, the lives of too many followers of Jesus. And I know that you've probably noticed it as I have. But more and more, as I said earlier, the church has become a body of long-faced saints. The great theologian G.K. Chesterton said it this way, Joy has become the gigantic secret of the Christian. We all too seldom find ourselves laughing, he said, especially in the best place where laughter ought to originate, in church. Church is the one authentic place, he goes on to say, where laughter should originate, and yet too often it's the one place where laughter is seldom heard. Story is told of a a letter from a woman who gave birth to 12 children after the age of 32. <laughs> I don't think that was in the letter. But, but she had, she, here she had 12 kids after the age of 32, and, and she, <laughs> she found the necessity of having to have a sense of humor about that. Now, listen to this. I love this story. She didn't marry before reaching the age of 31, so she never had, but she said she never worried about getting married or getting too old to have children. She said, and I quote, When I was still single, I would simply hang a pair of trousers on the footboard of, her bed, of my bed each night and then leave my singleness in God's hands. She said, I would then pray before going to sleep, Father in heaven, hear my prayer and grant it if you can. I've hung a pair of trousers here. Now please fill them with a man. (laughs) Sarah? (laughs) I got to tell you the rest of it. This This is classic. She says, I once told this to my husband and my eldest son. And my husband began laughing hilariously, but I noticed that my boy was strangely silent. I kind of became worried about him until one night when I walked in his bedroom and found a bikini hanging over the footboard of his bed. (laughs) Wow. We live in a church world, friends, that rightly emphasizes... Rightly emphasizes having a sense of responsibility and a sense of duty and a sense of decency. But how seldom does a church emphasize the need to have a sense of humor? Do you realize that a a sense of humor is necessary to keep all of us from losing our minds? (laughs) The The church that Brenda and I raised our family in my home church. When we would go to church, Brenda and I would strive every service to sit behind three elderly ladies that were at that time were in their 80s and 90s. Their names were Hazel, Faye, and Neva. And the reason that we wanted to sit behind Hazel, Faye, and Neva was that there was hardly a service that would go by without them getting tickled about something that was said. Something that happened or in a couple of cases that I remember someone letting out a sneeze loud enough to wake the dead. And Hazel and Faye and Neva would get tickled. 
and bless their hearts. They'd sit there and you could just watch their bodies shake with laughter. And just about the time they'd get themselves together and get over laughing, one of them would make a smart aleck remark to the other and it'd start all over again. And their laughter, here's the point of it, their laughter was contagious. Because we'd see them get tickled, and soon we'd get tickled about them getting tickled. Believe me when I tell you, though, that those were three of the most godly women I've ever known. They just realized how important being able to laugh at life and have a sense of humor about life really was. And I can assure you that the absence of a sense of humor has changed many a home into a literal hell on earth. When there's no laughter in the home, when there's no longer fun being experienced in a home, the joy and the enthusiasm and the upbeat part of life has gone. And I'm sure you've already figured this out by now, but if the only humor that you hear each week is my feeble attempt at it, that's tragic. You see, I don't want to be remembered as a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I I once had a member of a pulpit committee at a church where Brenda and I were interviewing as potential pastor candidates tell me, what we need is a preacher who will preach that hell is hot. Well, I'm all for informing people about the seriousness of a possible eternity in hell, but I can also tell you about this. If I stood up here and preached about hell every Sunday, many of you would find more opportunities to be gone than what you do now. Amen? Come on, just be honest with me. And you see, I don't want my flesh and blood family to remember me as someone who always came down hard on the circumstances of life, but as someone who was fun to be around. Same is true when it comes to the church family. I enjoy having fun. I enjoy seeing other people have fun. And I've been told by credible people whose stories I believe that even back in the 1940s, newspapers would run ads for employment, and the number one requirement back in the 1940s to become employed was to have a positive attitude, a demeanor that shouted, yes. Now, I thought about that. Why would that be the number one requirement back then? Well, obviously, the ads back then would also indicate that it would be helpful to read, have an education, Not as many people could do that back then as what there are now. But employers would be delighted if their employees were people who were compassionate, who were full of mercy, and be able to laugh at life as it then was, rather than painting a bad picture. They sought employees who lived in days when the hard reality of life with difficult circumstances could still be overcome by joy that comes from serving other people. In a world full of discouragers, we all have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to encourage one another. Have any of you ever received a word of encouragement from somebody that at that particular time in your life, it just seemed like that's what you needed just to keep your head above water? How important was that? 
have a commentary in my office. Perhaps some of you have seen Barclay's commentary, one of the great Bible commentaries. And William Barclay, who wrote it, once said, We have a duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man or a woman on their feet. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word to someone else. I read that and I thought, I thought, you know, you show me a follower of Jesus who can laugh at life for one who regularly takes life by the throat with a great sense of humor. And I will show you a follower of Jesus who has no trouble whatsoever convincing anyone around them that Jesus can change a life. You see, there's something about being joyful in the midst of whatever circumstances that you are in that works like a magnet to people. Have any of you ever known what I call to be a a Jesus magnet? Somebody that just exuded the love and the joy that comes from serving Jesus no matter what they were going through and you just wanted to be around them. That's what we're talking about. You'll have no trouble whatsoever convincing anyone that Jesus can change a life if you are a person who is filled with the joy that comes from serving Jesus. As valuable and necessary as things like love and knowledge and compassion are, I don't think there's anything that's more contagious than joy. There's just something about it. And when your demeanor exudes joy and excitement and enthusiasm, people will want to be around you. They don't want to stay away from you. They want to be doing what you're doing and be involved in what you're involved in. You become quite literally, as I said, this Jesus magnet. Why? Because he's the source of that kind of joy. He's the source. And what better opportunity to share Jesus than having a joyful attitude? How many of you are glad you served Jesus? Does it show? Does it show? That's a really important question. Does does it show in the way you present yourself that you are glad that you served Jesus? You know, I've often said that we have a lot of Christians that are walking around like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. I mean, there's no joy, visibly no joy. Why would anybody want that? Why would anybody want that? So all of that brings us to this New Testament letter that's easily overlooked. It's only 104 verses long. 104 verses. It's not challenging for us to understand. It's not philosophically or theologically difficult. It's actually one of the Apostle Paul's Letters to the churches, it's the simplest of all the letters to the churches that he had established. A New Testament scholar writes concerning Paul's letter to the Philippians, when we read this letter of Paul's, we're not reading things which were meant to be academic exercises or theological treatises. It's simply human words written by a friend to the rest of his friends. I like that. Now that's not to say that this great letter has no enduring qualities because it does. Neither is it saying that none of Paul's words that he writes in it are profound because they are. You see, the problem that many people have with letters such as the letter to the church in Philippi is because it doesn't sound necessarily religious. And we, we, we get this idea in our head that if it doesn't look or sound religious 
then it can't be too godly. Wrong. Why is it that things like that happen, that it, that it has to look or appear religious to, to have substance and meaning? This is a letter of joy. It's profound. It's simple. And it's desperately needed. The most popular, beautiful love songs that have ever been written are songs that were usually written to one person and yet they're passed on to us with beautiful orchestration added and they challenge us to love again and to become romantic with that person we've chosen to love. That's what Philippians is. It's a song of joy written to be understood and not so much analyzed. And today upper level education teaches us to be analytical And there's nothing wrong with being analytical, but the problem is sometimes we can experience paralysis by analysis. In other words, we analyze something so long that we literally become paralyzed and don't take any action to do what we've been analyzing. This is a book of joy. If this book doesn't make you exude joy, then this book and its its teachings have lost their meaning. Now, if you're like me, and I, I... do have the tendency to overanalyze everything. And, but in the overindulgence of my analysis, there are times when you have to set posts to see if I'm moving. You know what I mean? And that's what paralysis by analysis is. You, you just become so consumed in the analysis of something that you don't, you don't move on to, to bring it to action. Now, let me give you an example. How many of you have ever received a letter from someone that you loved. And I know maybe I should update that to say email. <laughs> Opening letters for mailboxes are not real popular to do anymore. Have you noticed that? How, how many of you have noticed you're getting less and less mail? Meaningful mail. <laughs> but if you've ever received a letter or an email from someone that you loved, I'm guessing that you didn't analyze it to check out its use of verbs and adjectives. You read it, and then you reread it, and you read it over and over again because hearing the words of that letter allowed you to relive the love that you felt for the person that was writing it. Are you with me? Those of you who are, who are friends of mine and are friends of Trisha on Facebook... Uh, you've, you've probably noticed over the last eight weeks or so that Trish has been reposting a lot of stuff, videos from Justin's life. That's healing for her because it reminds her of the love that they had that will no longer be able to be expressed to one another. Now, I don't mean to sound morbid or, or to, to bring you down with that. I'm just saying it's a matter of, of feeling Feeling love, those are means of encouragement for her. And I've heard person after person respond to her posting and say, Tricia, keep posting these. We love to see the, the, the relationship that you and Justin had and, and the love that you had for one another. And what I've found is it's encouraging people, not only Tricia, It's encouraging the people who see those. Do you see how it works? We we post things that have meaning and feeling to them. And 
Those are all means of encouragement, and that's what this letter is about. We have to get a feel for this letter in its entirety. And if I were to title this letter with a single descriptive word, the word would easily be joy. It's about joy. And I would encourage you over the next few weeks, read this entire book. You can sit down and read it in 10 minutes. 104 verses, you can read it in 10 minutes. Paul in this letter does not mention any specific sins that, Paul, that the church in Philippi is dealing with. And more than anything else, it's a letter that is written so that he can laugh at life. I mean, think about it, friends. <laughs> Paul has been doing the work of an evangelist. He's been doing what God called him to do, right, for many, many years. He's been obedient to God's calling. And what that's done has landed him in a Roman jail. And all he can do is to wait for his turn to either be beheaded or paraded into the Roman Colosseum to be fed to lions. Now, you got to laugh at that because if you don't, it's going to bring you to tears. And Paul makes a fundamental decision. Rather than sit here and have a pity party that no one else is likely to attend, I'm going to choose joy in the midst of my situation. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 16, 11. He's talking to the Lord, and he says, Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. Paul describes his letter over and over again in this letter. We quit at verse number 6, I believe, of chapter number 1. But if you go on to verse number 7, Paul says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Go down to verse number 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's talking about, I may be here in chains and I may be in a dungeon, but in spite of that, the gospel is still being preached. You remember a jailer, the Philippian jailer, came to Christ because Paul preached the gospel while in prison. He's saying, in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he gives us these words. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Wow. This doesn't sound like a guy that I can visualize. I mean, I'd be, I'd be sitting there saying, isn't somebody going to help me? Isn't somebody going to break me out of these chains and get me out of this prison? God, I've been serving you faithfully. I've been doing what you called me to do. And this is what I get? Not Paul. Not him. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. A.W. Tozer says it this way, We often think of ourselves as inhabiting some kind of interval between the God who was and the God who will be. But as Paul shows us, he is the God of the present. Even in the midst of his circumstances, he experienced the presence of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus brought him undeniable joy. I think what we need to learn and to think of God as being the God who, or let me say it this way, the God of now. Uh, The reason I say that is because so many of us carry things like shame and, and guilt from our past. Hello? Many of us do. Uh, we, we want to remove from our, our, ourselves from the fear and worrying about what tomorrow holds. And I think what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul in this letter is, you need to focus your attention on the joy of the Lord now. Whatever the situation is, whatever your circumstances are, find joy that comes from knowing Jesus. Now, Here's a question for you. How many of you would admit that there are times when the the pressures of life and the circumstances of life just become almost so overwhelming that you forget who you serve? Come on now. We, We become focused on the problem rather than on the problem solver. Helen Malakote said it this way in a poem entitled, I Am. She said, I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly, my Lord was speaking, I am. He paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not, I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard, for I am not there. My name is not, I will be. But when you live in the moment, it is not hard, because I am here. My name is I am. I love that. You see, what happens, friends, is sometimes we live our lives under the grim hand of frightened faith. We focus on the way that we were or on the way that we one day will be. 
And in the process of that, we do not choose the joy that's available in living for Jesus now. Worship team, would you come, please? Hey, how about that? (laughs) You know, I think if there's one thing that God has a great distaste for, it's probably joyless Christians. We have reason, we have cause to be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. Why? Because we know that this life is not all that there is. That gives us hope for the future. But we also have the promise that Jesus gave us. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, even till the end. He's with us now. He's with us now. And I know that there are probably some of you in this room this morning who are going through stuff that you'd just as soon not be going through. Is that safe to say? We've all been there. We're all going to be there again. Stuff that we wish we weren't going through. Stuff that we wish we didn't have to experience. But what Paul is telling me in this letter to the church in Philippi, a church who was under tremendous persecution, a church who was going through the stuff, is that in the midst of the stuff, I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to be right there with you. And because of that, you can find overwhelming joy because I've overcome all the stuff. And it's just a matter of time till it's revealed that all of that stuff is going to be meaningless one day because I'm going to rule and reign and you're going to rule and reign with me. Now that's cause for joy, friends. I got to tell you, going to that funeral this week of of Thomas Stanley. I made the trip to Wichita by myself. Brenda had other things going on. And I left that funeral. Thomas Nashley's kids are first grade, pre-K, and 10 months. And for some reason, the events of the last two months in our own lives just came flooding back at me. And I'm driving down the highway, and honestly, it was a combination of grief with a little bit of anger mixed in. It was, God, why? Why? Guys that are at the the fullest part of their life and And they're the ones taken. God, I don't understand these kids. They're going to grow up without a father. And it was like the Spirit of God just came to me and said, 
I am a father to the fatherless. I look at Ashley and I look at Tricia and the way that they've responded to the grief in their lives and I'm thinking, they get it. They get it. Ashley spoke at her husband's funeral talking about how God had prepared her for this tragic part of her life. And I'm thinking, man, what am I missing here, God? And what I'm missing is the very thing that I'm preaching to you this morning. There is joy to be found even in the midst of the worst circumstances you can imagine. And that joy comes from serving and knowing Jesus. And knowing that this is not all there is, folks. This is not all there is. There awaits each and every one of us joy unspeakable, full of glory. Choose joy this morning. Heavenly Father, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I know that there are people in this room who have experienced the same things that I've been experiencing not only these last few days but these last couple of months. And Lord, what I have found, it's, it's easy for me to say to others, find joy in the midst of this. But it's an altogether different animal for me to choose joy in the midst of my heartache. And so, Lord, I know how difficult it is in the midst of stuff that we don't want to be going through, stuff that's literally breaking our hearts, breaking our families apart, and being told to choose joy in the midst of it. That's why we need your Spirit, Jesus. It's why we need your Holy Spirit to do for us what we cannot do on our own, to walk alongside us, to lift us up, to fight battles when we're not physically capable of fighting them ourselves, battles that we're not capable of spiritually fighting ourselves. All you've left us to do is the assignment of choosing joy, and you'll do all of that other stuff for us. And Lord, I've not yet received the answers for the whys that I've been asking. And I know that I'm never going to in this life. But I deliberately make the choice this morning to choose joy. Joy in knowing that this is not the end. That you're in control. That you're with me every step of the way. And this is the time that I need to lean on your everlasting arms. Thank you, Jesus. 
Lord, help each one of us to entrust ourselves into your everlasting arms. Be a father to the fatherless. Be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Be a constant companion, Lord. And help us to trust you with the tasks that are bigger than we are. And in the midst of that, you'll bring us joy. Just draw us close to you in this moment this morning, Jesus, I pray.